Amen. You can now grab a seat after that long run-on sentence. It's really helpful. No, man, uh, the thing I just can't get over this morning is that, uh, man, our, our team wrote a song. Like, isn't that beautiful, right? Like, praise God that artists are able to use their gifts and talents to bless our church, and we get to worship God through it, and that, that's fun. Uh, anyway, my name is Mo. Good morning, City Light. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's been probably over a month, I think, since I last preached uh, at Central, so that's kind of crazy. I'm excited to be here this morning uh, and walk through uh, this New Testament book that is continually revealing more of what the Old Testament part of the Bible says, and it's beautiful, right? Like, it's, it's beautiful to see that, that the Old Testament has, is full of these placeholder symbols and shadows until the, the full substance of Christ is revealed uh, in the New. And man, that's, that's a fun work to see. Um, and this morning's text is, is unfolding more of those, those mysteries to see that the entire Bible points to Jesus. Every single book, that means that Jesus didn't start in John 3.16. He started in Leviticus and Numbers and, and Genesis. And where you see Noah, you can see Jesus. And where you see Rahab, you can also see Jesus. And so Hebrews helps to kind of shine some light on the Old Testament and giving us a lens to see the Bible so that we might see Jesus in and through it. So as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, the hope is that as we look through the scriptures, we might see him more. So you might be sitting here thinking, man, I know my Bible pretty well. I know the Old Testament pretty well, so I've got it down. But at the end of the day, as we continue to grow and we see Jesus more clearly through this, uh, man, the hope is that we might see God more beautiful as we continue to, to grow and walk with him and see his Bible for all it has uh, for us and all it will display about him. So if you have a Bible, uh, please open it up to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be in the first 10 verses this morning. Uh, when we come to this Bible passage like this, though, uh, our tendency is to read through it real quick because either we know we feel like we, we were supposed to read it or we just kind of feel guilty because we think God might not like us if we don't read this section. But generally speaking, when we come to it, we're like, I'm just going to get through it just to get through it. And, and the issue with that is it, it implies that the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, wasted some words, right? Like he wasted some of his time when he was writing this book. But here's the problem with that. I found this actually on the National Human Genome Institute. Here's what it says about humans. Humans have 46 chromosomes that contain all of the genetic information uh, that contains us. And there are over 25,000 genes in the human genome. Genes are uh, composed of DNA, and it pre it's predicted that there's about 3 billion pairs in the human genome. Okay? Humans have approximately 10 trillion cells. So if you took the DNA of a human, like the cell in the DNA of a human, and spread it out, it would reach the sun from Earth 100 times. And that is true for all of the 7 billion people that live on this planet. See, God took great care in wiring and designing and making you, you. And then he passed on a book with 66 different books within it that was written by over 40 authors inspired and powered by the Holy Spirit just so that he might reveal himself to you. This is no ordinary book. It's the living and active word of God. It's, it's not a book about you, by the way. It's not a, a roadmap for your life at all. It is the reader's digest because that's all we could actually understand. Explanation of who this amazing, beautiful, ever expansive God is. And so to think that he paid so much close attention to detail in forming and shaping you, how much more 
would he do it in the Bible when he reveals himself to you? And so as we look at this text today, my hope is that, that we would leave with a mindfulness toward the beauty of God revealing himself to us. That we would see God doesn't waste a breath. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste words in the scriptures, but he wants to reveal himself to you more beautifully. Amen? So let's look at the first five verses. Now, even the first covenant have regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things overshadowing the mercy seat, sorry, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So, Point number one this morning is the tabernacle was a legit place. Uh, thus far, we've heard from the author. He's explained in chapter seven that, hey, you need a great high priest. So what he said was, hey, you had some high priests of old, but they have all been replaced by Jesus, who's the ultimate eternal high priest. Then in chapter eight last week, we were told, hey, you need a new covenant, and Jesus is the mediator for that new covenant, right? So when we're taking all of this information in, we have to ask ourselves, and I believe this ethnically Jewish audience at this point are asking, okay, do you mean then to tell me that everything that was built up, maintained, created before Christ was meaningless, purposeless, or valueless, right? And the author's jumping into our section and saying, no, by no means is it meaningless. In fact, it all had a meaning, it all had a purpose, and it all is very significant, and so he does that by pointing to the tent or the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the, the dwelling place of God for Israel. And so it was very significant to them. It was the, the, the tent that he's referring to ultimately became the temple. And so the tent was like the mobile temple for them as they moved along as a people group. Uh, and it was just a very special place for them. And so the author spends verses 3 through 5 reminding them of the contents of the tent. And so there's three sections to the tent. Um, you have the, 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 uh, sorry, the outer court there, and then where we're going to focus on this morning is on that tent portion there where it says the temple. That's actually the, the holy place, and then there's another section called the holies of holies. And so that's what the author spends primarily his time in our text in. So that first section, the holy place, it says that it contains a lampstand or what is known as the menorah uh, when, they, when the priest would walk in. Now the holy place was only accessible to people that were priests, okay? So those are the only people that can go in. And so when they saw the lampstand, it was there to remind the priest to lead the people in knowing and understanding you are to be a witness of God. You're to be a light to the world. That's what it was there for. So as soon as they came in, and so this light was not to go out. It was made to continually be lit on a, on a continuum. It was never to go out. It was a bright, shining light to tell God's covenant people. Remember the covenant with Abraham? Remember that I made a covenant to you in Genesis chapter 12, and here's what it says. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And here's the reason why, so that you might be a blessing to other nations. 
okay, so that you might be a blessing. So that lampstand was a constant reminder of God's mission with his people, a reminder that God will bless and, and pursue his people. He will, he will give his people some flourishing, but that is so that they might be a blessing to others. They were blessed to be a blessing. So God's people are not blessed just for themselves, by the way. They are blessed for other people. So like us, the Jewish people were to be a light to the nations. So that was their call. That was the lampstand. Uh, then in the next uh, part of this the thing, it says it, con- it contains the table of the bread of presence. Now, this was a sign to remind God of his covenant with his people, but then also to remind his people that, hey, I'm the one who provides for you. Hey, I'm the one who sustains you at a pe- as a people, and so you have a commitment to obey me. So, so, when, so when they walk in, they saw the, the bread of the covenant. It was a reminder to say, hey, in response to God's provision, we are to obey God. And it was also a reminder to say, hey, God is intimately involved in every single aspect of your life. And so it's not just a church on Sunday thing or a Bible study. No, God wants to be a part of every aspect, including the Cheerios that you ate this morning. He wants to be a part of that. Remember... Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I, I preached a sermon on giving or generosity. I was in Matthew uh, 6, and it was just talking about basically where your heart is, there your, tr- your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, it's followed up right after that is a promise from God. It's, it's in verse 26. It says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? He's pointing out, hey, you're far more valuable than the creation. I love you. I value you as your heavenly father, and I will be the one to provide for you. The table with the bread of presence was a reminder of the nearness of God. You see, all of these objects, all of this furniture in here had a purpose and a meaning. It was there to, to remind them that this was a legit space for them. It was a space that reminded them of the character of God and what God was all about. Then in the th- verses 3 and 4, it transitions to the most holy place. So remember, you got the holy place, and then the holy of holies is also what it's no- known as, which uh, we've talked about before, but the holies of holies was only entered in once a year by one person only, and that was the high priest, right? And so inside of that was the, the golden altar of incense. It actually kind of rode in between where that veil is. It was kind of sitting in between those things, and, and that thing was lit both in the morning and the evening. So the aroma of the incense would like spread throughout the entire tent. And, and catch this, the purpose of that was to remind them of worship and prayer, So what greater thing to set above in between the two holy places than something that's going to fill the room with the aroma of saying, God is worthy of worship. He is the ultimate provider. He is worthy of our worship. So why not have that aroma go through, right? Then there's the Ark of the Covenant, and that was where the the presence of God dwelt. It was a a most holy thing. It was was the object, Uh, and so the presence of God was in that. And there's a guy in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 6, his name is Yuzah. He's infamous. Like, he, he's really well known because he touched the ark and died. Like, he, can you imagine that? You get your name written in the Bible, and the only reason why you're in the Bible is because you died for touching something holy? Like, that's a hard, hard way of life. But anyway, uh, he did that because he, he disobeyed God, touched it, and he died in an instant. Like, th- that's, this, this is displaying a characteristic of God, right? It's, it's displaying his holiness, his glory is what the ark was showing. The presence of God is holy, and sinful man can't approach it. And then the urn 
With manna was a reminder to the people of Israel that, hey, I, I provide sustenance for you as well. And so it's reminding them back to when God freed them on dry land through the sea and they got to the other side. They're like, where are we supposed to eat? And God said, here you go. I got food every single morning for you and you don't even have to work for it. And so that was reminding them, hey, I am the ultimate provider of your sustenance. And then Aaron's staff is sitting in there as a reminder that, hey, I'm going to provide leadership for you and I'm going to shepherd you, my people, because I love you. And the table of the covenant reminded them of God's law and the standard of human flourishing that God had created for them. The mercy seat, this is the one that we're probably most familiar with the ramifications of, but it sat at the top of the Ark of the Covenant and was the place where the priest would go in and make atonement for sin. This is where they, they sprinkled the blood of a goat uh, over for the, for the payment of sin. Now, so that represented the atonement, the propitiation, the ultimate payment for sin that God would eventually provide. So then the author in verse 5 says this. He says, this made me laugh. He says, of of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So basically saying, I could go on, and I could tell you a whole lot more about all these things, but we don't have space for that, and I don't have that space for that today. So here's the point. This place of furnishings and this tent are all valuable and significant things that God peoples Israel, and it ought to be significant to us too, right? So like, uh, it'd be easy to hear all that and say, cool, thanks for giving me a history lesson on Israel. Now we can go home, right? But, but, but that's not the point here. The point here is that this ought to be significant to us. So let me illustrate why. I'm going to share my story with you. So my family and I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska when I was around six years old. We were doing that to start a new life and, and hopefully get a better life than what we would have had in the past. And I would say, Where we came from and where we ended up, it was a better life. However, uh, some of that old life still came with us in in the form of my dad's drug addiction. So having a father who's addicted to drugs means that you you have this father who's kind of in, he's kind of out, he's kind of in, he's kind of out. And that also meant that we moved from place to place. I have literally lived on almost every corner of this city at one point or another. I also have gone to five different schools before I graduated high school. Mind you, my undergrad also has five transcripts to it, but that has nothing to do with this. But anyway, so I went to five different schools before graduating high school. Before I graduated, I had had my son Trey when I was 16 years old. I had also invested myself in drugs and alcohol and those sorts of things. Then I graduate high school, go to Doan College to play basketball, not to go to school, uh, to play basketball, and I meet a girl. I meet this girl who does some missionary dating. Now, all of you young folks in the room, don't do that. Okay, just saying, I don't recommend missionary dating. Missionary dating is essentially you share the gospel with somebody so they get saved, and all of a sudden you start dating that person. So you share the gospel with the intent of dating them. That's a problem. Anyway, it worked for me. It worked out. We, we were good. So I uh, got saved, heard the gospel, responded to the gospel positively. We started dating. Then we got engaged. Then we got married. We were married for about 22 months, where then she died in a car accident. Now, that moment was the marker 11 years ago that shifted my life into pursuing full-time vocational ministry, okay? I then met my wife, who's wise and beautiful and wonderful, Colleen, and we have three more kids after Trey, so we have four total kids, and then we met Kristen and Austin. We planted this church about two and a half years ago, and God has done some miraculous, beautiful things in and through this church, and I've seen Jesus just do so much in this family, and I could go on, right? I could tell more of the story, just like the author could explain more, but I'm not, because I'm not going to bore you. But nonetheless, so the question is posed, why share all of that? Well, I had a staff member come to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I want to challenge you. And at that point, I'm like, okay, girl, what's up? Like, what are you going to do now? And so she challenged me and says, hey, you ought to share your story more with our church. And I was like, oh, 
That's an interesting challenge. She gave me two reasons why, which gave me so much insight into this text. She said, one, you, followers of Jesus, City Light Church, are my family. When I share my story, it lets you into my story and brings you closer to me, right? And the second reason is because it shows how beautiful and glorious Jesus is for writing a story that we would have never written ourselves, right? And so now, now I, I'm experiencing this beautiful, loving relationship with God, and the same is true here for our author, that if, if you look back into the past in the Old Testament, you start to see the story and how we got where we are, right? We get to see more of, of why it's so significant that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we get to see the fact that we know the end game, right? The end game is he gave us the tabernacle, but now Jesus is the greater tabernacle, right? Like he becomes the temple. Like J- Jesus even talks about it in John 2, 19 through 22. He says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has been taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up on, in three days? Here's the catch. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, he was talking about himself. The temple was just a symbol of his reality that he was going to be for us. That matters to us. The tabernacle, the tent, the temple are all pointing the Jews and us to who Jesus is. It invites us into the story. It allows us to see how beautiful Jesus is. Catch this. The mercy seat, the mercy seat right there was replaced by Jesus because Jesus is the perfect atonement that we really needed, right? The, the, the tablets of the covenant, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law and perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. Aaron's staff showed that the earthly priesthood was for a time, but Jesus is the perfect high priest that we ultimately needed. The Ark of the Covenant was God's dwelling place, but Jesus came in the form of the man so that God might dwell with us. He's the Emmanuel. The golden altar of incense represented prayer to God, and now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. The table of bread of presence, Jesus literally said, Says that he's the bread of life. He is our sustenance. And the lampstand, come on, bro. Thank you for being with me. Anyway, the lampstand also is lit constantly, right? It was constantly lit because somebody else had to do it. Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12 clearly states that Jesus fulfilled all of these things. So like me sharing my story with you brings you closer to me, these pieces of scripture, these pieces of history of God and his people ought to bring us closer to Christ. So when, you, so when you watch a movie, for instance, it pulls you into the drama, right? Like as the story unfolds, as you're seeing everything happen scene by scene to the ultimate conclusion of it, and you're brought into it, you start to put yourself into it. But if you jumped at the end of the movie and saw the conclusion of what happened and every, all, half of, all of humanity disappeared, like... I'm referencing the movie. Anyway, uh, it would ruin it for you. You wouldn't see the drama. You wouldn't get drawn into it. You wouldn't put yourself to make yourself a part of it. You wouldn't submit yourself to the beauty of that story. And so we are brought into Jesus' story when we hear and understand what happened and, and how we fit into that story. So the tabernacle, yes, it was a legit place, and the artifacts in it were necessary for relationship with God. And God gave something greater, someone greater, and that was Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded where all of this came from so that we might know where we're going. So the tabernacle was a legit place, but it was also a limited space. Let's look at the last five verses. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, with which he offers for himself and for the 
unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the, symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worship, but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, it was also a limited space. That's point number two. So we've talked about this earlier, that the high priest was the only one that can enter into the holies of holies. That's, that was a, a regular thing on the day of atonement. He would take the blood of a sheep or goat and make sacrifice for himself, but then make a sacrifice for us. And the reason why he had to do that is because no human can approach a holy God because we are sinful. So this is what it looked like. The priest would have a bowl of blood. He'd walk through the outer court. He'd walk into the holy place, and then he'd walk into the holy holies. He'd sprinkle blood on the altar, and then he would sprint out of there as quickly as possible so he would not die, right? Like, that was the scenario. If you, if you read Leviticus 16, it's kind of funny, but kind of not at the same time, but it says that uh, he, it says so that he does not die on several occasions because that was the point. It's like he did this so he didn't die because if he didn't do it exactly the way he was supposed to, that's exactly what's going to happen to him. Can you imagine that, though? Like, you're applying for the high priest job, and they're saying, hey, uh, can I get workman's comp for that? Like, if I die in the midst of my work environment, do I get workman's comp? Or, or even just thinking about the job description, some of the hazards of this job could be a death or at least early retirement. Like, not helpful. Uh, anyway, there's even places that would actually say that they literally tied a rope around the dude's ankle just in case. Like, that's how serious it was. And so you can imagine, man, as he's coming out, the people are like, okay, he's okay, he can go back in for our sin now. Like, it, it, was, it was a good thing that they did this, right? It was good for them to follow God's law, follow God's rituals exactly the way he commanded. And the reason that it was good is because we would ultimately see all the things God would go through to make atonement for us, right? You see, the goat's blood that was spilled over and over and over again was not a sustainable model. It was, it was necessary but not sustainable. So here's what I mean. The requirement to approach God, to enter his presence, to, to have forgiven your sins, to be in a relationship with him, it's required to have blood sacrificed for it. There requires a life to be sacrificed in order to pay the payment. Why? Well, because we're, we're sinful, right? Like we have sinfulness in us. In fact, uh, verse 7 went so far as to say he had to make substitute. He, he gave sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people, right? Like he's not talking about the things you did on purpose. He's saying even the sin that you're not aware of. So, so we, apart from Christ's supernatural work of atoning, sanctifying us, are so sinful that we sin on accident. We have sin that we've never even seen before that Christ atoned for. So, so have you really thought about that? Like, no matter how much you confess, there will always be sin that went unnoticed or unrealized. That you will be, there will be ways that you offend the holy God of the universe without even knowing it. So in other words, no matter how broken you think you are, you are all the more sinful than that. It goes deeper. So we needed a blood sacrifice. We needed a, someone to pay the debt that we owe God. We needed someone to die the death so that we don't. You see, the system that was in place was only a placeholder for the actual Christ to come, right? The time when Jesus would come and be the true and greater sacrifice on the cross. So the difference is his sacrifice wasn't an over and over, year in and year out sacrifice. His sacrifice was once and for all. 
So the animal sacrifices, they were just a foretaste of the truer sacrifice, the final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And guess what? That sacrifice goes all the way back to those who are looking to his coming and washes away all of that sin and then washes all of our sin in the present and off until we go into eternity. It washes all of the sin. So, so look back with me in the last uh, couple verses. Verse 8. By this Holy Spirit indicates... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal with food, only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So at this point, the author's saying, okay, let's pause for a second, and let me tell you exactly what the Holy Spirit's trying to show you right now through all of this. And so the Holy Spirit was using this as an illustration to teach us, I think, three things. One, worship of God was limited in the Old Covenant. Like, there wasn't, there, there wasn't full access to God in the Old Covenant. They, they, could, they could approach God, but they could only approach Him so much, and now we have direct access to God. Like us, we have no limitations to go before the Father. In this moment, right now, when you go home, if you're in a relationship with God, you can go to him. I intentionally didn't mention something in verse 3. There's the veil right there that's between the holy place, which is the presence of God, and the, whole, or the holy place, and then the holy of holies, which is where the presence of God is. In our Bible, it tells us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, the veil that separates God's people from God's presence was torn in half forever. So what that's saying is that you and me, when we enter a relationship with God, we can approach the throne of God with great boldness, with no fear at all, and we can, we can talk to him, we can hear from him, we can be in our heavenly Father's gracious presence for all of eternity. That's what that means. Right here, right now, we can walk into the holies of holies. Two, the Holy Spirit wanted to teach the old system was imperfect when it comes to cleansing all sin. So, so it couldn't perfectly cleanse sin. And it said in our text that it was a symbol, right? Which is the word um, parable, which is parable, where we get the word parable from. And it was basically a placeholder, a symbol saying, hey, I have a greater object lesson for you. When the real thing comes, you'll understand it. And that real thing was Jesus Christ. He cleanses all of our consciousness. See, Jesus gives our heart this rest by really and actually removing our guilt and not just temporarily. Like, we don't have to wait another year for the guilt to be removed from us. No, it has been removed once and for all. He perfectly cleanses us. Three, the Holy Spirit is teaching that the whole thing was temporary. Like, verse 10 was so funny because it says, uh, hey, it was just water, it was just food, it was just rituals, right? Like, he's saying that, hey, they were just symbols. They weren't the real thing. They, were, they weren't meant to be forever. It was just animals being sacrificed. The whole thing was temporary until the Reformation happened. And it was intended that it was never intended to last forever. Now, the author used that word Reformation, which is not something that we usually use. But what Reformation means is, is to take something and make it right or, or make it satisfactory. And the old covenant was not satisfactory when it comes to making all things right. But the new one is. Jesus Christ makes all things right. In fact, he's going to come back and make all, all of creation right. He first made us right with God, but then he's going to make all of creation right as well. And that is a satisfactory system. So here's the lesson for us. If you don't have Jesus, all you have is an inadequate system. 
It doesn't work, whether that be religion or rebellion, relationship or responsibility, it doesn't work. Look, the fact that you naturally want to work, whether it be by morals or doing good things, in order to appease God, shows that God requires that he be appeased by a work, right? It's a legit place to be to understand that reality. However, your work isn't enough. It needs a substitute that is an ultimate work. It's limited, right? Like the perfect work of Jesus isn't limited at all. If you place your faith in him, if we place our faith in him, we're no longer in debt to God's justice, but we get to lavish in his loving grace. We don't have to go back to an incomplete system because we've been given a perfect one through Jesus who has brought us into the story of God and gives us direct access to him. So no matter how legit you think you are, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how moral you think you are, it's not going to be enough. It's going to have a limitation to it. And Jesus says, I have no limits. Take my life instead. Take my life instead. If you're depending on yourself to get yourself there, he's saying, I tore the veil. You have direct access just through me. Your life without Jesus will be limited because you cannot know God without him. But Jesus came to replace your limited works, your limited religion, your limited life to give you what you can never give yourself, and that's God himself. So if you've done that, if you've trusted Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we no longer are, have a seared conscience where we're always trying to earn. Instead, we've been freed by the grace of God to have a perfected conscience that we get to walk in grace. We no longer try to pursue God by earning, but we respond to God's grace with great effort, right? Like, you we have the freedom to do good works now. It's not this thing that you have to do because, well, God's going to smite you if you don't. No, it's the freedom to say, God loves me so much and I'm going to respond to him by loving others. That's the freedom we have. It's a grace-driven effort. So follower of Jesus, City Light Church, I want to call you to live a life in response to the extremely expensive, the long-awaited, the meticulously planned out freedom that Christ would give you on the cross, not by earning it, but by a grace-driven effort, which means by the grace of God that is lavished upon you, poured out on you on the altar of grace, may we be a people who love other people, may we be a people who love God and continue to proclaim the beauty and the excellencies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.